I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And today we're talking about groups of warrior women. Uh, I'm raising my glass at my can of light cuisine, uh, which is actually kind of foul, to the 36 women who led 80,000 Vietnamese into a rebellion against their Chinese occupiers in 40 CE. I am raising my peak organic hop noir because it's dark, and even though it's little, it packs a punch for its weight, just like the Night Witches, the 46 Taman Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment in the Red Army in World War II. All ladies, all badass. All right, so these 36 women fighter generals were chosen by the legendary Trung Sisters of Vietnam. Trung Trak and Trung Ni were sisters, and they were also best friends. As girls, they'd been trained in martial arts and military affairs. They were rarely out of each other's range, and they each had their special strengths, and which no doubt contributed to how they were kind of this high-octane duo uh, that came to power and led this rebellion. Trung Trap was the elder and made for an intelligent leader from 40 CE to 43 CE. She'd ruled as queen from just after leading the rebels' first victory against the Chinese and on until the end of the rebellion in 43 CE. So about three years she ruled. Not long, but the history has lived on in the minds of the Vietnamese to this day. They called her Trung Vuong, or the Shi King Trung, and she also established her royal court in Milin which was an ancient political center in the Hong River Plain. Trung Ni, the younger, was both co-queen and the best warrior of the two. She served as the top general, leading the entire rebellion's army, including the 36 women generals that her and Sis had selected themselves. Most were selected to be generals because they'd had experience leading their own little armies before, by the way. (laughs) Uh, But more on the Vietnamese society that existed prior to Chinese occupation a little later. Among these select group of female warriors, the sisters included their own mother. And another legend recounts a pregnant woman named uh, Feng Ti Chin, who gave birth amidst the battlefields and got up a few hours later to continue fighting with the newborn slung over her shoulder. (laughs) Although the Chinese had been committing the slow and vigorous cultural genocide for some time, since the start of their occupation of Vietnam, which began in 111 BCE, the origins of the Trung Revolt really lay in the Chinese administrator's increasingly aggressive attempts to raise taxes and gain total control over the native Vietnamese aristocracy, called the Lock Lords, of which both the Trung sisters were members of. Before this, we do definitely know that the Vietnamese aristocracy definitely benefited from Chinese occupation. There was intermarriage, political collaboration, the usual. But by the time 38 to 39 CE rolled around, the Chinese Han Dynasty and the Han warlords in Vietnam We're going after the Vietnamese aristocracy, something fierce. (laughs) So, the girls were born into a lock lord, aristocratic family, and Trung Trak the Elder had also married another prominent member of the aristocracy, this dude called Ti Sak. So, this Ti Sak was complaining about the oppression by the Chinese and was plotting to overthrow the Han Chinese warlords in Vietnam. He was arrested for this and put to death. And then some accounts I read said that the Chinese raped his widow, Trung Trak. It's not too long after this that Trung Trak calls on her sister and they decide... Fuck this. We need to raise an army. Based on the paintings of the sisters, I'd like to believe that this involved them climbing onto their elephants with their thick silk robes and little umbrellas, going around rallying people one by one, singing and burning every vestige of Confucian and Chinese oppression. Um, (laughs) Because, seriously, the paintings we have of these women are really electrifying. They just... (laughs) glassy and tough as hell. But the actual story is that they started a small militia in their village that eventually spread throughout the region of Nam Viet, otherwise known as Vietnam. The girls eventually organized this army, which consisted of peasants and dozens of clans of both men and women, and of course, the select 36 female general warriors who would lead the rest of the 80,000. It's probably the most famous revolt in Vietnamese history, and the Trung warriors were proclaiming themselves the Vietnamese forces since they had the peasantry support. They liberated, slash reoccupied, around 63 fortresses around Vietnam and declared Vietnam an independent state again. The two queens resolved to form a simpler form of government, which claimed to be more in harmony with traditional Vietnamese values and ways of doing things. As a digression here, I'd like to point out that it's always been the assumption of Chinese scholars and many Western scholars, as well that the technologies and, like, up-to-the-minute civilization of Vietnam at this time and currently was brought to them via the ultra-sophisticated Chinese occupiers. However, 
archaeological evidence of the Red River Delta regions, especially in Vietnam, suggests that this was in fact not the case at all. And um, I quote Stephen O'Hara's paper on this. He says, we now have reason to believe that the Chinese encountered a stable, structured, productive populace and relatively sophisticated society of whose existence they, the Chinese, had knowledge of. So when we read that the Trung sisters were bringing back true Vietnamese civilization, we shouldn't think of this at all as bringing back some sort of barbaric and backwards ways like some historians and theories on this would have you believe. I don't know. That That is often the way that, like, at first the narrative is always, well, you know, the, the Celts wouldn't have had civilization if it wasn't for the Romans. The Aztecs mm -hmm. and Mayans weren't really that advanced before the Spanish got there. The, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the Native Indians Americans. Were uncivil yeah, the Native Americans yeah. were uncivilized before Americans got there. It's just like, wow, so you mean those cultivated fields just happened naturally? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this is also the best place for archaeology and history to combine. Uh, huh. Finally, um, so these women were doing nothing less than attempting to bring back the former glory of their own culture um, that they had enjoyed and cooked up for themselves, by the way, long before the Chinese invaders had come with their own systems and technologies and also hmm. oppression. Um, also, they did away with the hated tribute taxes the Vietnamese had previously been forced to pay to Chinese administrators and leaders, and all of these new measures were enforced and defended by none other than the women generals and female warriors they'd chosen to do so. For three years, this group fought constantly with the Chinese in Vietnam to protect their newly won independence. Over time, though, the 80,000 of the Vietnamese forces dwindled and the Trung forces were running low on supplies. Finally, the Chinese forces led by General Ma Yuan, overwhelmed the Vietnamese into retreat and ultimately defeat. Uh, in recognition of their defeat, the Trung sisters either drowned themselves or committed suicide some other way. How they died exactly isn't known. The most popular versions of this story attribute the motivation for the rebellion to Trung Trak's outrage as a new widow seeking revenge for her husband. This may very well have been a factor, but there was more to it than just being a scorned widow, and it's certainly not purely a case of Kill Bill style revenge. If it were, I've, I doubt very much that their idea to raise a rebellion would have gained so much traction and remained on as an inspiration for an entire nation to defend their land from first the Chinese, then the French, and then the Americans. Uh, for one, Trung Trak, remember, was a member of the aristocracy whom the Chinese were targeting, and also, previous to Chinese occupation and Confucian ideas, ideas which totally axed the power and rights of females, mm -hmm. um, the Trung sisters had been raised with comparatively quite a lot of rights and powers being females. They had matrilineal rights to, prop to own property, uh, the right to be a judge or a warrior or a politician. In short, mm -hmm. uh, we do know that in Vietnamese society prior to Chinese Confucian occupation and oppression, a struggle which lasted, remember, a thousand years until 939 CE, women participated in society much like the men did. Well, okay, no. I venture to say that not all women, but definitely the aristocratic women, like the Trunk sisters, you know, they did have an aristocracy. But, and I don't know that I'd go so far as to call it a total matriarchy prior to Chinese patriarchal rule, because there's just not enough knowledge, it seems to prove it was. But for damn sure, we know that the rights of the Trung sisters were being threatened twofold. First, their power as members of the aristocracy, and then their power as female citizens of their society. So it's true that Vietnamese society had much more gynocentric attitudes prior to Chinese occupation. So we might be able to carefully extend this as being a further motivation to the thousands who fought peasants and aristocracy alike, as well as to the select 36 female general generals. Their nation was under fire, and they women included weren't going to take that shit lying down, which happens to be a tradition that Vietnamese people have failed to abandon completely since. During the Vietnam War, the American intelligence people would study this legend precisely um, in order to better understand the culture, which was shockingly kicking their ass, <laughs> using no less than thousands of children and women guerrilla fighters who were within their own historical context, colored and inspired by the stories of Lady True, who I'll talk about later, you did last time, and yeah. the Trung sisters. Um, they were doing nothing really subversive, subversive within their cult historical context um, or shocking at all. They were just simply fighting yet another group of <laughs> invaders of their land. But just like with the folklore of Boudicca, 
who fought the Romans, the folklore of the revolt of the Trung women of Vietnam underwent a lot of changes over the centuries. When Confucianism did finally dominate in Vietnam, because the Trung sisters were defeated and the Chinese did gain traction ultimately, the traditional story of the Trung revolt was retold with a patriarchal spin. These stories said that the reason the Trung sisters' armies failed in the decisive decisive moment of battle was because all the soldiers saw their female officers and fled at the sight of being led by women. <laughs> they hadn't noticed up until this point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They somehow escaped their... <laughs> when one of them was giving birth, they were like, oh, gee, that's weird. I've never seen yeah. a man do that before. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a completely ridiculous <laughs> twist. I mean, yeah, the soldiers have been fighting for these queens, and they've been fighting for females general, female generals long before the final battle with the Chinese. Remember... The Trung sisters were trained from the time they were little girls in martial arts and military strategy. This was part of their education. And the battle was lost, we know. And the battle was lost and the soldiers fled because of how overwhelming the Chinese fighting force was, period. It had nothing to do with being led by women. And uh, I quote Professor Mark Jason Gilbert. He writes a lot about this patriarchal spin and the history of how this um, this story Uh, has changed and morphed over the centuries. And he says, um, these works criticize them for taking up male roles and sought to undermine their bravery by feminizing them through references to their beauty. Court historians further belittled the sisters' role by arguing that the participation of these women in the revolt was merely one of spousal piety, which is, again, exactly the thing that annoyed me. I remember I went went on, I saw, I love crack.com, but they Mm -hmm. kind of spun this, like, uh, 10 stories of revenge, uh, women giving revenge that would make Kill Bill look like nothing. They had the Trung sisters on there, and it's the exact same story that um, says, oh, they did it out of revenge because they killed her husband. I'm like, no, but there's so much more to it than that. Can you not? That seems like more of a last straw sort of thing. It's like, we're threatening you, your position as a nation, we're threatening your position as a class, we're threatening your... position as a gender and oh hey by the way also we've offed your husband (laughs) exactly okay so the story of the trung women is also often mixed up with the story of lady true who you did last episode Mm -hmm. um like lady true trin the trung sisters committed suicide in a river or were trampled by elephants and they also met defeat in battle because they'd been exposed to male genitals um, then became startled and, f- and then fled. So one of the other versions of the Trunk Sisters was the exact same as with really? True. Yes, they wrote that they had exposed them to male genitals. And Wasn't one of them married? <laughs> you think she might have seen one before. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, really? Battle-hardened warriors that are used to viewing the horrors of war are frightened off by penises? Hmm. Mm, okay. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> But these are the rewritten, these are the rewritten stories of both parties of women, um, which were totally, I quote Professor Gilbert again, he said, written by male historians struggling with the ambiguities inherent in championing both patriarchy and patriotism among a people who may have long accepted women could play an active role in society and on the battlefield. I think that just sums it up beautifully. Um, yeah. No, no, like, that's the sort of things that some people have to justify after the fact as something other than, well, they were capable warriors who just happened to have ovaries. Mm -hmm. They have to justify it as, well, it was a revenge for their husband, or they were freaks who were nine feet tall and had three-foot-long breasts, you know? like Yeah. With the onset of communism, though, there were attempts to revive the old place of female fighters in Vietnam, but apparently it didn't go so well. Uh, The Republic of Vietnam subsidized the formation of a small force of beautiful women called the Tiger Battalion that never saw combat. (laughs) so there was that but otherwise this historical aspect of vietnam's and also of women's place in vietnam has not in the least been extinguished and the trung women's Mm -hmm. legacy's symbolic significance plays a part in i quote um from this gilbert again the american policy analysis of vietnam's potential value as a u.s ally in a conflict with china so (laughs) I guess this means that in order to incur Vietnamese support in the future, um, America would try tapping into this age-old Trung legacy, which symbolizes the fight for freedom from foreign invaders. And in the case of China, their previous invaders, definitely potential re-invaders, which could invariably include women. 
these women would prefer to fight rather than take on the traditional female wartime roles like working in factor, factories and whatnot we've mostly seen in the West. Vietnamese women have have proved time and time again they don't like these roles when they're in war. They prefer to fight. Weren't there some BC women? Probably more in spy type roles, right? But They've consistently um, shown this tendency in times of war, Vietnamese women go to war um, mm-hmm. and they participate in war. So America has... Uh, pegged this as a, a, a potential for the future. In short, <laughs> America can manipulate this psychology and use these gals as cannon fodder someday in a war with China. So, but of course, also there is a Trung Sisters Day that is still celebrated yeah. in conjunction, yeah, with the National Vietnamese Women's Day. It's um, every year on the sixth of February, according to the lunar calendar. Uh-huh. Yeah, and there's also a street in downtown Ho Chi Minh City, which mm-hmm. is formerly Saigon. Uh, that's named for them. So should I ever go to Saigon? I know when to go. <laughs> exactly. You should go there on an elephant. Oh my god, that'd be so cool. <laughs> Lindsay, I want to go to Saigon. Let's go to Saigon. It'll be awesome. Oh my god, we should. I've always wanted, like, a moped. I'm going to be telling you about the Night Witches. Uh, This one's a long time coming for me. As you might have seen on my picture on the website, I'm wearing an aviator cap and drinking out of a red-starred flask. That was because I was a Night Witch for Halloween a couple of years back. (laughs) Oh my god, so many people, are you Amelia Earhart? I'm like, do I look like I'm lost? (laughs) Anyway, point being, I actually didn't know as much about them uh, then as I do now, and I have not been disappointed. I am speaking of the 46th uh, Tamine Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment of the Red Army in World War II. At its height, it comprised of over 200 personnel. From its original two squadrons, the unit grew to be three operating squadrons and a training squadron, flying over 24,000 combat sorties, and collecting 23 heroes of the Soviet Union among its members. Among the male, uh, like, night bomber regiments, there was, like, one one to three heroes of the Soviet Union in their ranks. They operated from May of 1942 to May of 1945, and, uh, yeah, they all had lady parts. It was one (laughs) regiment... It was one regiment of what may be the largest scale all-female military endeavor in modern history, um, which started out as Aviation Group 122. This was the project of Marina Raskova, who was, as much as I usually hate these sorts of comparisons, kind of the Soviet Amelia Earhart, because she was just famous, absolute celebrity. For a country as massive as the Soviet Union that was lacking in a comprehensive rail and road system, civil aviation was very important to the government. As such, Mm -hmm. air clubs were common and aviators were cultural heroes, particularly those holding long-distance records, whether they were male or female. In September of 1938, Marina, along with two other women, Paulina Osipenko and Valentina uh, Grizodubova, set a distance flight distance record, flying from Moscow to Siberia in a converted bomber that they called Rodina, or the Motherland. (laughs) Uh, That alone would have brought them fame, but they wound up running out of fuel and having to make an emergency landing. After that, they were stranded for 10 days in Siberia. Um, (laughs) Marina parlayed this into a literary career, writing up her account of the experience in this, like, adventure-style novel tome that... Everyone read, everyone loved. The crew became the first women to ever receive the Hero of the Soviet Union Award. So it's kind of like, I'm guessing something on the lines of a Congressional Medal of Honor for us, or like a gold star. It's mm-hmm. a, and they received a victory parade upon their rescue. Young pilots of that generation held them as idols. Both Valentina and Marina had many important friends in the aviation and military, so upon the outbreak of World War II, they were not turned away from serving the way that many other women were. Though the Constitution ostensibly regarded male and female as equal, that didn't really hold true if you didn't have connections. 
Mm. Um, by the end of World War II, though, 800,000 women served. Most were, though, either in support positions or were one of few women in male regiments. Um, so, yeah, at the start of World War II, Paulina was unfortunately deceased in an airplane crash, but she wound up with Stalin as a pallbearer, so that's still not very comforting. Um, Valentina used her connections to gain command of a male bomber regiment, but Marina was not content to just secure a position for herself. She went to her connections and started kicking up a fuss to try to get women a women's aviation section formed. Upon the Nazi invasion of their country, hundreds of women aviators, some amateurs, some flight instructors even, wrote their heroine, Marina, begging her to help them get to the front. They'd been turned away from military service, but they weren't going to give up that easy. So just keep that in mind when I'm talking about these women. These were all women who weren't like recruited or drafted they like fought tooth and nail for the opportunity to risk their lives i found one story that quoted that a couple of women had stolen a plane and were trying to make it to the front that way and she used that in her arguments but i didn't really actually find any news clippings on that so it might have not been true (laughs) point is when marina was making her case she was able to speak more than just theoretically about what women were capable of or deserved to be given a chance to do. She literally had a briefcase full of letters from qualified pilots saying, send me to the front. Nice. Yeah. One report that said that Stalin was doubtful at first, and I'm going to quote here and think about how rich it is coming from that paranoid, unscrupulous reptile. But he said, (laughs) tell us how you really feel, Lauren. (laughs) But his reason for not wanting to do it at first was, you understand, future generations will not forgive us for sacrificing little girls. Ugh. That's what I'm saying. Like, really? Like, didn't seem like you gave a lot of thought about what future generations were going to think about what you sacrificed, buddy. (laughs) Anyhow, somehow she won him over, though. And in October of 1941, the regiment was approved, and recruiting began, like, among the people who'd volunteered. Um, mind you, at the time of all this, Marina Raskova was 29 years old. The recruits were all trained, receiving in a bare six months the amount of training that was usually received in three years. Um, among the volunteers, pilots weren't an issue to get since they were, you know, the main amount of people volunteering. And as for mechanics and armors, it wasn't difficult to find factory workers with either the general experience or stamina for that work. More on what that entailed later. But it was navigators who were the sticking point. Um, So many aviators heading in, ready to be fighter pilots, wound up getting retrained as navigators, with the remainder coming from those with technical school backgrounds. One woman who wound up being one of the star navigators of the 46 was uh, uh, Yevgenia Rudneva, who'd been a student of mathematics before the war. When she left school, she told a professor she had to go because there can be no real science in an occupied country. Her plane went down in flames over Kerch when she was only 23 and never been kissed, according to one of her fellow uh, regiment pilots. She wound up with an asteroid named after her, though. Uh, One of the sources I read mentioned a monument to her in the Kerch Peninsula where she died, and then brought up the asteroid, describing it as her being commemorated on the Earth and in the sky. Uh, Marina also didn't make it through the end of the war. She was with the 587th, and her plane went down in bad weather in January of 1943. Her influence was so high that some of the women feared that with her death, the regiment would be disbanded. But they'd already proven themselves pretty handily, so that didn't come to pass. But that's skipping rather ahead. Anyway, once the pilots, navigators, mechanics, and armors were trained by February of 1943, they were split into three regiments. The 586th Fighter Pilot Aviation Regiment, the 587th Bomber Aviation Regiment, which was later the 125th Guards Bombers, and the 588th night bomber aviation regiment later the 46th but they were known to the germans they terrorized every evening as neat toxin or the night witches <laughs> the 46th was the only regiment to stay all female throughout the w- entire war except for about a month that they had a male radio tech in to fix their equipment he got issued women's underwear <laughs> <laughs> Whether as a joke or by mistake, no one really knows, because I guess he had a last name that wasn't really gender-specific, but I guess it pissed off, <laughs> it pissed him off enough that he was just like, I am not staying here one minute longer than I have to. 
and he didn't. <laughs> they are also the most decorated, best documented, and most highly publicized of the female regiments. And I'm not going to buck tradition here because they were just inconceivably daring. So if you want to read about the other regiments, please consult the books I've put in the further reading because the other groups are profiled in those as well. The night witches didn't begin so gloriously. Upon their first deployment, they were flying in, and the male pilots escorting them to this new base in Engels, where they were flying, flew in out of formation towards them and buzzed them. The newbies, thinking they were under attack, disgraced themselves by breaking formation and scattering. Upon their landing at the base, they were taunted, Hey, spineless! Can't you tell a swastika from a star? The commanders of the base were angry, to say the least. They thought they'd been sent a bunch of girls who had no right to be in war and gave them all a few extra months of training before certifying each individual as ready for combat. I'm sure that the extra training served them well because their work was exceedingly dangerous. It cost the lives of 31 women in the regiment. When I first read that number, I was a bit confused because of their risky work that sounded low, Considering that at the peak, the regiment had only 200 women, which includes not just pilots and navigators, but also ground crew and command staff. And with the exception of one member of the ground staff that was killed in a Nazi bombing raid, all of the dead were pilots or navigators. So that casualty rate stops looking so small. It was 27%, according to one source, but I couldn't really find a complete list of numbers on pilots and navigators versus the other staff. There was a woman that wound up in the the fighter pilot regiment, Irina Ferevorskaya. She'd been offered a position in the the 46th, but declined. Later afterwards, she said, I didn't realize that if I agreed to go, I would either be dead or a hero of the Soviet Union. So, more on the nature of the work and how it was so dangerous. Let's start with the planes. These women flew U-2s, later designated PO-2s. They were named after their designer, Poli They were biplanes made out of wooden canvas meant to fly with solely a pilot and a navigator, both in open cockpits, which, as you can imagine, was a lot of fun in the winter. Planes had no radio, none. No communications of any kind with the base or with each other. And no special navigation equipment for the fact that they'd be flying these at night. And if they lit up their navigation equipment, they left themselves open to be seen. Wow. The girls made little notches on their wings so they could have the targeting adjusted adjusted to their height from how they sat in the cockpit so they'd know when to drop the bombs or supplies they were carrying. Often what they would do, they would, they would drop out flares, like to light up the target below while not uh-huh. revealing themselves. Like, I think it was set to, you know, light up a couple of seconds after they dropped it. I see. Before the war, these planes had been used as training aircraft and crop dusters. What? <laughs> Their max speed was about 85 miles per hour with a cruising speed of 60 miles per hour. Neither parachutes nor self-defense machine guns were installed in these planes until near the end of the war. Oh, my God. Um, the reason, one of the reasons for there not being parachutes, some sources are like, so they could carry more bombs, but also because, uh, the girls piloting it felt that if they got into trouble over Soviet territory, they could land before the plane burned. And if they were going down in enemy territory, that it would be yeah, better to crash and burn than yeah. the Nazis finding them. Yeah. Totally. The planes were retrofitted with bomb racks and can carry six to eight bombs at a time. Uh, this was an advantage to them for a bit because the Nazis first assumed that these little planes would be carrying, like, you know, two bombs. So after the first two dropped, they'd start firing, reveal where their anti-aircraft guns were, you know, where their searchlights were, where they were, and so then they could just circle back around with the other four to six that they were carrying and, you know. Ah. Yeah, they were, like, along the front lines the whole time, so they were just attacking, like, enemy emplacements. But since the PO2s were made of wooden canvas, it didn't take much for them to get lit up, and I don't mean figuratively. One historian, Mark Goli, describes the planes as small, slow, and as easily set alight as a match. However, the planes had the advantage of being very maneuverable due to their size and speed. Their slow speed also meant that the drops that they were doing, whether they were bombs or supplies, could be more precise. They didn't need much room to take off or land, so they didn't always need a full airfield. Sometimes just a clearing or a road would do. The women regarded their planes with affection, calling them dragonflies, coffee grinders, flying sewing machines, and swallows. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there was one uh, really metal picture I saw where two of their number had died. And actually the two that made it so that they did have to start carrying parachutes since they, like, you know, went down in Soviet territory. They're like, all right, now you ladies are carrying parachutes. 
because this this death could have been prevented. But it had like their names printed, like painted on the side of the plane, and it's like we will have our revenge written below it. <laughs> the planes also had one other very important feature, which is that they were easily piloted when the engine was off. The BO2s were excellent gliders, which was key to the regiment's success with them. So. The regiment, because, you know, whatever benefits this plane had, it wasn't really anything that you should be engaging your enemy in in daylight. (laughs) Um, It was used only at night. So they already had the cover of darkness on their side, and they would just start approaching their target from a really high altitude and shut off their engines and just glide in silently. They'd only start up their engines after the bombs were dropped, and then they'd fly away. So they bought themselves valuable time against the the searchlights and anti-aircraft guns with which the Nazis were guarding whatever it is the Night Witches were trying to take out. You know, a supply depot, just troop encampments, like a railway, a bridge, any of those. Um, It was still very dangerous work, and sometimes a double mission was employed. One plane would fly in noisily, attracting attention, revealing the placements of enemy armaments, while a second plane glided in silently and took those armaments out. Not much fun for plane number one, I gather. (laughs) (laughs) Said pilot Evgenia Zhigulenko, There is a superhuman psychic overstrain when you are blinded by the searchlights and deafened by the explosions of anti-aircraft shells and fire all around you. Another told a story of her and her navigator landing, and as they got out of the plane, they burst out laughing at the sight of each other because both were covered in soot from the shells that had been going off near them. Because, you know, near death. Hilarious! (laughs) (laughs) On one occasion, the women would endure anti-aircraft fire and searchlights to find that when they got to the target a bomb would stick and not drop. So the navigator would climb out of the cockpit, stand on the wing, and try to get the bomb off the plane with her hands. What? (laughs) They didn't describe it like it happened often, but, you know, like it had happened. But I guess if you were landing with any, like, live bombs you left yourself, it had sort of them blowing up. Like, there were other stories of, like, my plane was in trouble, and so I landed far away from the base because I had a full bomb load. So if it was going to go up, at least it wouldn't take any planes with it. It's like, what? I hate to say it, but I did just <laughs> see that movie Sucker Punch. And some uh-huh. of the scenes in there, I was like, no way. And you just described some shit where I'm like, yes! <laughs> I don't know how this is in a fucking movie. Get the fuck on this shit. So after the mission, they'd fly back to their auxiliary airfield, hoping that there were no enemy night fighters after them, since their little planes could do jack shit against that. Because they were on the front lines throughout the war, their auxiliary airfields would be darkened and well hidden. They'd have to land using the lights the ground crew had set up for them, which were sometimes just vehicle headlights or kerosene lanterns. The pilots came to joke, soon we'll have to land by the light of the commander's cigarette. (laughs) Irina Sebrova, one of the pilots, said, landing was like walking around with closed eyes. (laughs) They were operating along the front lines the whole time, so looking at where they were stationed is kind of like a locational history of the Red Army's comeback in World War II. From Stalingrad to Kerch and Sevastopol on the Tamyang Peninsula to Minsk, Warsaw, Danzig, Stettin, and finally Berlin. Paulina Gelman, writing of their missions during the Caucasus uh, section, when the Red Army was still retreating and burning the fields behind them. It was too early to harvest, and they refused to let the Nazis take any sustenance from their land. Scorched earth and all that. Paulina wrote, I remember a night when I flew with tears on my face, and so I was crying because it was my country and it was burning. So, you know, even though they were doing all this stuff, they were still had people, like, back home that they knew were in danger, you know? Yeah, yeah. The mechanics and armors also had to work in darkness. The armors, those responsible for the bombs, which weighed 25, 32, or even 100 kilograms each, so that's anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds, that they'd carry over by hand. At one point after they started getting success, like, a, a major came and saw their operation and was like, well, we'll send you some men to do some heavy lifting. And they were like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first the uh, armors would attach fuses and then carry these heavy and dangerous loads over to the plane by hand, sometimes solo, sometimes in groups, and then affix them to the plane by feel in the darkness, which meant taking their gloves off in the winter months. Your gloves off in Russia? Yeah. In the winter? No. Yeah. Yeah. No. While you're handling a metal object. Nice. Yeah. Fuck that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sometimes they had to sleep in dugouts, if they slept at all. For three years, for the three years that the Night Witches were active, most of those in the regiment 
in general, claimed that they'd been sleeping only two to four hours a day for three years. Pilots and navigators were sometimes given stimulant pills that they called Coca-Cola. <laughs> but sometimes on particularly trying nights, uh, oh yeah, I didn't mention, sometimes during the day, these women would be flying supplier recon missions and then just go and bomb all night. So sometimes on those nights, the pilot and navigator would trade off who got to be asleep. The pilot flying while the navigator slept on the way to the target, wake her up. <laughs> a quick spot of dodging flak and spotlights and then the pilot would sleep while the navigator flew them home although there was a there was one woman that was quoted being like uh yeah there was a couple of times that we'd wake up and just be like wait which one of us was awake Uh oh shit shit uh hold on hold on hold on hello hey yo okay Wow. Uh, Yevdokia Bershanskaya was put in charge of the squadron, which would turn out to be a good call, despite her objections to Marina Raskova that she was not suitable for command. She led them to be an exceedingly productive and decorated regiment, and she was later one of only 12 singled out officially as remarkable air regiment commanders. As in, the other 11 were men. <laughs> she treated her girls with motherly concern. She thanked crews politely after they'd completed their mission, but despite this, she still kept them to strict standards of performance. One of her programs that led the regiment to never have to be taken out of commission the whole time was the in-house training that she offered. Navigators would train to be pilots, and mechanics and armorers would train to be navigators, and new recruits would train to be ground crew. That's how, despite their casualties, by the end of the war, they'd gone from having two squadrons to having three, with a training squadron besides. Huh. Uh, another tactic that contributed to their efficiency is that when they flatted official regulation, and instead of having each plane serviced by its own individual team of mechanics, each mechanic would perform a set function and go down the line, performing it on each arriving plane in succession. Hmm. And this would get them ready to go back up in the air sooner, and some, sometimes it would take only five minutes. <laughs> when the higher command inspected them, they were reprimanded for going against policy, and then as soon as the big wigs left, they kept it up. Irina Rakolskaya, the chief of staff, states in her memoir, May all the gods and military manuals and regulations forgive us for this transgression committed so long ago. She's cool. She wrote a ton of stuff about it. So each plane would fly between five and ten missions every night, and sometimes they'd be stationed at the same airfield as a male regiment, and they'd outpace them. Several women from those days confirmed uh, when they were stationed at the same airfield as a male regiment, they would purposely try to outpace them. <laughs> the men even attempted to stop us. They said, the less you fly, the longer you'll live said Paulina Gelman, but she said that because their regiment was all volunteer, only the dying and wounded left. <laughs> the men would smoke and talk between flights, and the women would take their supper in the cockpits. The pilots wouldn't even get out between flights. On nights of maximum effort, in the winter months when the nights were longer, that's right, when it was cold out, they said, let's fly more in an open <laughs> cockpit. <laughs> so on those nights, they'd fly 10 to 15 missions. One of the staff credits this dedication as a sign of their female thoroughness. <laughs> I have never heard in my life, in my, in my own country, ever someone talking about my female thoroughness. In fact, one of the women, Irina Sabrova, flew a regimental record of a thousand and three missions. So that, that's a thousand and three time of purposely flying into deadly danger to pox your enemy. <laughs> you get a hero of the Soviet Union after 500 successful missions. Those in the regiment that received it had more than 700 each. Wow. Irina got her plane secondhand because the pilot that flew in it before her had been awarded her hero honor posthumously. Uh, Ducia Nosel was killed by shrapnel in the middle of one of her missions. Her navigator, Irina Kacharina, had to hold her friend's body upright by the collar of her uniform with one hand while flying the plane with the other. She managed to fly the plane back through rough air and land it, though she had minimal flight experience and had started in the regiment as a mechanic. How is there not a movie? <laughs> I don't know! <laughs> Dusia had kept a picture of her husband in, the, in her cockpit, and it had gotten her blood on it when she was killed. Irina Sabrova, usually a kind, gentle girl, left the picture in there to give her the anger she needed to keep going and fly that record number of flights. After the war, Shy Irina didn't even show up her medal, taking it out rarely on special occasions. Huh. But it wasn't just flash, 
flack that they had to watch out for. Their little coffee grinders had no defense against Nazi fighter planes, as they found out one horrible July night in 1943. The pilot of the surviving plane, Larissa Litinova Rosanova, described the horror of flying towards the target, the fourth in her formation, and seeing the searchlight turn red, which she knew meant a plane was burning. But she hadn't heard any anti-aircraft fire. When the second plane flew by and she observed the same thing, but with still no sound of anti-aircraft fire, she came to a horrifying realization. For the first time in the war, the Nazis were using fighter planes at night. As the other plane in front of her met the same fate, Larissa shut off her engine and went into a dive. She took evasive maneuvers and flew in a circle around the target and dropped the bombs from an altitude so low that she was barely above the concussion of the explosion. Then she glided back out, started the engine up again, only when the plane had become dangerously close to the ground. She avoided the fighter planes by flying at an altitude beneath which they could engage them. Unfortunately, the plane behind her didn't follow her lead, no radios, remember, and went down in Mm -hmm. flames as well. In 10 minutes, they'd lost eight members of their regiment. For the next few weeks, they flew with fighter escorts, clearing the way ahead of them. Those back at the airfield spoke of the horror of this and other fatal missions. Irina Rabolskaya told in her interview of the helplessness of seeing a plane burning in the sky, and she would be able to look at the map and the schedule and tell who it was plummeting down a flame in that corner of the night but wouldn't be able to do a thing. Uh, The night bombings units was more one of disruption and morale killing than the actual taking out of hard targets. The little planes couldn't carry the ordnance necessary to take down tanks or armored cars, but they could destroy supply and ammo depots and disrupt the ability of the Germans to get any rest. The women said when they glided over, they could hear, attention, attention, the ladies are in the air, stay in your shelters. (laughs) When they were entering areas that the Nazis were retreating from, the civilians would say to them, Oh, but you're so pretty. The Nazis told us you were ugly night witches. Well, fuck you. (laughs) The 46th would also do recon and supply missions during the day and were instrumental to the Navy's establishment of a beachhead while beginning the Crimean offensive. This was also at night, so they'd send two planes over, one that would be dropping the bombs and one that would be dropping the supplies. And this is when uh, the Red Army was trying to establish, like, an entry point to take back the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, But they were very quickly surrounded by Nazi troops. So these were very precision drops, so as not to give the supplies to the enemy or put it in the drink. They'd come in over the sea, one plane drawing attention and dropping bombs, the other flying over the Red Army troops and dropping the supplies. One of the pilots coming back from that... Nadezhda Popova found bullet holes in her wings, her map holder, and even her helmet upon landing. Some weeks later, after the landing party got through, four soldiers came into their mess hall and started hugging the women, thanking them for saving them. Oh, Um, oh, yeah, there were some marriages that came out of this war. You know it. (laughs) Yeah, and the usual afterwards, like, the usual afterwards, they were like, well, the women that went for the front were looking for action in more than one way. It's like, yeah, that's why they joined an all-female regiment, you asshole. Shut up. <laughs> so when they left the Tamayan Peninsula, following the war north and west, the regiment was given the designation of guards and the appellation of Tamayan. When another uh, male night bomber regiment asked Rebolskaya why her squadron had gotten in, Arena answered, well, we flew many more flights. <laughs> exactly. They continued in the battle west to Berlin, where the terrain changed from mountainous regions with dangerous up and down drafts to the muddy fields and wrecked villages, where they'd have to lay down planks for their makeshift runways in order to take off and land. On the personal side of the experience, the women said that they felt like sisters, and a comparison of the all-female environment to an integrated army experience was available, because at least some of the pilots were women who'd previously served in male regiments, before transferring in. They said that work in male regiments was easier because the guys could do the heavy lifting, but that the company was better in women's regiments because it was, you know, more informal. They strived to stay feminine despite being issued male uniforms. They had to line their boots with fabric (laughs) because they were all too big. Um, So they'd embroider and adopt kittens, and one of them, Evgenia Zigolenko, she would always, you know, do her hair up before heading out. And so one of her comrades was making fun of her for that. And she responded, imagine that I have a forced landing in a male fighter air dome. Soldiers are rushing to my aircraft because they know the crew is female. I, absolutely dashing, slide out of the cockpit and take off my helmet. And my golden curly hair streams down my shoulders. Everyone is awed by my dazzling beauty. They all desperately fall in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. So yes, there was much solidarity in the group. Sometimes when they finished a mission, they'd dance and sing. 
They said places in the mess hall for missing pilots. Because remember, no radio, so if anyone went missing, there was a chance to kind of come back. There were, you know, stories of crash landings where they'd then have to make their way across Nazi territory and had a suicide pact with each other that if they heard German voices coming close, boom, boom, you know? Yeah. And even though some of them said that a woman's job was not to be at war once they'd mustered out, they were very definite in saying that they were absolutely just as capable of going to war when it was needed, just that it wasn't in their nature. They ended their service as one of the top performing PO2 regiments in the military, flying more missions, dropping more bombs, and had a total of 23 or 24, sources vary, heroes of the Soviet Union. The other female regiments, there were five of these hero awards among the 125th, and there were none in the 586th and four awarded to women in male regiments. The average male night bomber regiment had one to three heroes of the Soviet Union in their ranks. Uh, the 46th were discharged in October of 1945 after ending their service in May of that year. Hmm. And for many years after that, they had, like, you know, meeting spots that they would meet up on on the October Revolution or February Revolution anniversaries. Huh. Um, Irina Rebolskaya, the one that was chief of staff, went on to be a senior physics professor at Moscow University. Um, another, Paulina Gelman, was an advisor in Cuba after getting her Ph.D. in economics and these two, as well as several other of the women involved, wrote memoirs and gave interviews of their experiences, which is why so much is known about the squadron. Nice. However, after the war, almost none of the women in these regiments continued into military service. Yeah. Many of them discharged for medical reasons. Only about a quarter continued to be pilots. There did not continue to be any kind of women's program in the Soviet military, and no other country followed suit. So though they proved themselves... This wasn't something that seemed to be intended as a prototype project. So yeah. why did it happen? There are three main theories. One, that the Red Army was really that desperate for cannon fodder. Just imagine, they had to resort to little girls. <laughs> Two, that the Soviets were really willing to do militarily unwise things for the purposes of propaganda and medals, awards or stories, and that the awards and stories are just show. Or three, that Marina Raskova was powerful and influential enough to get the Soviet army to do something entirely unprecedented that they wouldn't have done otherwise. There is a great dissection of this in uh, Rena Pennington's book on the subject. I find her argument that it was due primarily to Marina's perseverance that the group was formed to be pretty persuasive. Because she makes some really indisputable points against the other arguments. First, yeah. uh, though the Soviet Air Force was in dire straits after the first Axis assault, this was due to a lack of planes, not a lack of pilots. Uh -huh. Most of the destroyed planes had been on the ground at the time, and at the early stages of the war that this group has approved, there wasn't the personnel shortages that would require the mobilization of women if this was truly just a last resort. Uh -huh. <laughs> hey, the Nazis were certainly up shit creek by the end of the war, but there wasn't any kind of gender integration into their forces. Yeah. And in fact, there was no shortage of male Soviet pilots at this time that it was that Marina's you know, project is being approved. For every woman pilot, there were two or three male pilots in reserve. Uh -huh. And as for it being for propaganda purposes, you kind of have to wonder for who? Because the top Soviet propaganda writers didn't go near the women's regiments. They received scattered coverage within their own country at the time, and afterwards they kind of just got trotted out on International Women's Day, like photo spreads. Yeah. Foreign press wasn't encouraged to meet them. There's this great anecdote of an American writer seeing uh, Maria Smirnova, who was one of the pilots, with her medals pinned to her chest while in, at an anti-fascist conference in August of 1904 and saying, they have pinned decorations on this girl and they believe they can fool us. Then he got shown her logbook that showed that, showed that she'd flown over 800 sorties. <laughs> His reaction isn't recorded, but I really hope that sheepish covers it. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the female-directed Soviet propaganda of the era was more directed at getting women to take the absent men's place at the factory or on the farm, not into his footsteps on the battlefields. At the same time that the night witches were tearing up the skies, Soviet public school curriculums were being rewritten to teach girls domestic skills and boys military skills in separate classes. And yeah. the newer cadet schools were directly prohibiting the entrance of women rather than just discouraging it to them yeah. as individuals. Uh, the Soviet government took up pro-natalist policies, a.k.a. the position of women was to be raising future communists. Yeah. In July of 1945, when the aviation group 
122 was being demobilized, President Kalinin gave the women's regiment a speech congratulating them on their heroism and told them that they'd gained equality for women in an unprecedented sphere. Now go find yourself a civilian job. (laughs) He concluded with, but allow me, as one grown wise with years, to say to you, do not give yourself airs in your future practical work. Do not talk about the services you rendered. Let others do it for you. That will be better. Well, I guess we're doing your talking for you, ladies, and raising our glasses to you, you fierce, daring, brave dames. Yeah. But you seriously don't want to tell about the time that you went out on the fucking wing. Come on. No I'm an old lady. About the time that you pried loose a bomb with your bare hands. Seriously. I'm fucking 70. I have people who are going to listen to me only because I'm 70. And I'm going to be like, fuck yeah, I went out on a fucking wing. God damn it. Like, fuck you, I'm not telling you. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of them wrote memoirs, and um, yeah. there are a couple of books written about it, and there have been some military-type studies of it, just because it really is, in modern history, the best example of a mass amount of women involved in combat. All three of the regiments did pretty well for themselves. I mean, the Night Witches were kind of, you know, the overachievers, but the other ones didn't fail. <laughs> I mean, from the fighter pilot, there Main reason, apparently, that there weren't any uh, heroes of the Soviet Union in them is that a lot of the women trans- would get transferred to male units after they started doing well. Huh. So, yeah. Raising our glass to the night witches. Thank you for listening to Dame is a Four-Letter Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And listen to us next time when we're talking about uh, journalists. Mm-hmm. And remember, Dame is a Four-Letter Word. Yeah. Witches, uh, Yevdokia Bershanskaya was put in charge of the squadron. I don't know why I don't send these names to you and make you tell me how to pronounce them. <laughs>